the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. I'm pleased to welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show, David Brooks. He is, of course, a columnist for the New York Times. You can watch David on PBS, the NewsHour, frequently. He has sometimes been a panelist alongside of me on Meet the Press. He's been an acquaintance for years, but an acquaintance, uh, sort of a newsroom colleague, a green room friend, not really uh, someone that I know very well. And therefore, I found The Second Mountain, his brand new New York Times bestseller, The Quest for a Moral Life. To be surprisingly and deeply engaging. And uh, David Brooks, welcome. Good morning and congratulations. Quite a book. Thank you. Your support on Twitter has meant the world to me. Well, uh, let me tell you, this is not really comfortable for me. I normally love author interviews, but this is an incredibly personal book. And I'm Irish Catholic, lace curtain, keep the, draw, you know, the, the blinds drawn. How uncomfortable was it for you to write this? Uh, it was uncomfortable. Uh, you know, in the first draft, there was none of me in it. And one of my uh, researchers said, you got to put yourself in the book. And it's a book about relationships, about a book, a book about relationships with other people, relationships with God. And I couldn't write a book about relationships without some vulnerability at the end. And so once you throw yourself into the book, you just got to be honest about it. So I tried to be as honest as possible how I have tried over the course of my life to be better at relationships with other people and uh, my own meandering, unique relationship with the Almighty. Page 262. I am a wandering Jew and a very confused Christian. I am used to telling people on this radio show, David, that I am an evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian, that there's one river and two banks. And, I, and you, you're basically saying there's one river and three banks, and that's fine, too. But it's, it's, I don't write about that because it's almost impossible to explain to people you try. I try. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish household and with Jewish ancestry, and I feel very Jewish. Uh, the story of the Exodus story is my story. But I also grew up in an Episcopal church and an Episcopal camp, and some of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met, I met through that camp, and they exemplified a certain sort of Christian grace, a certain sort of Christian beauty. And so I had those two moral ecologies in my world and in my brain. None of it mattered for much of my life because I didn't believe in God anyway, so it didn't matter. But then the presence of God, the presence of something uh, divine came into my life. Uh, my old categories were not adequate to the reality as I experienced it. And then it became a problem. Uh, and I have been on a five-year journey trying to understand what God has in store for us and which truth is his truth. The result of that journey is the second mountain. I'm going to follow the Luntz rule and say the title of the second mountain at least seven times in the course of our conversation so that you will go and buy the second mountain because I think you will be engaged by it. It will actually oblige self-assessment. That's one of the things I wrote on Twitter, uh, David Brooks. I don't know if that was your intention, but it does oblige a serious reader to self-assessment. Yeah, we're trying to figure out what is the best life, and I'm trying to figure, out, figure it out like everybody else. And the best life is not lived out of the ego, and that's the, sort of the default setting for a lot of us. Am I popular? Am I liked? 
uh, am I doing well in the world? It's the culture of the meritocracy. But, you know, I went through a season of suffering in my life uh, about 2013. When you do that, you, you realize you can be broken or broken open. And people who are broken turn tribal and angry and nasty, and they spread a lot of pain around. Somebody had a good saying that pain that is not transmitted gets trans pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. But some people are broken open. Uh, they sort of shed the desires of the ego, and they sink into their heart and soul the desire to be cl- really close to other people and the desire to serve some transcendent good. And so I've tried hard to be in the latter, to be broken open. And it means being more vulnerable than you would have been otherwise, which is tough in this world because we're in a very cruel world and a very performative world. But once you realize the deeper desires in yourself, and you've written that about this in some of your books, uh, you become a different person. You have better desires. But I don't, I, I admit this freely, I, I don't get as personal as you do. I mean, it's not as raw as Rousseau or Augustine, but those two didn't have to deal with social media, crazy people, Twitter. Uh, when you go vulnerable in a personal memoir now, you're asking for the spears to get launched, uh, right, David Brooks? And I'm sure they have been, and I'm sure you've got the armor on, but it nevertheless has not, it cannot be pleasant. No, it's been a tough month, and it's a tough month for both my wife and I, because uh, we didn't want this, uh, and my wife in particular is not a public person at all. But uh, And plus there's a political dynamic here. I'm perceived by the New York Times, by the New Yorker, by the New York Review of Books, uh, by New York Magazine as a, as a figure on the right. And if you show vulnerability, they're going to take advantage of it to uh, launch some spears. Uh, and it's hurt, but uh, I, I think in this culture where we're so disconnected from one another, where our relationships are not what they should be. The only way to build relationships is through vulnerability, by telling my story honestly, and then you can tell your story honestly, and we listen to each other, and we actually get to know each other. So I felt even in the face of cruelty, vulnerability is the right answer. I do know that you took great pains to protect as best you could your children, your former wife, and your new wife. And to all of them, I just say thank you for the permission they must have given you to be as courageous as you are in this book, because... I, I've spent my entire media career, my kids are now all grown and out of college and I don't have to worry about it, but I always protected them as best I could from this craziness that goes with being a semi-public figure. You've worked on that, but did you get permission from each of them explicitly to be this personal? Uh, sure, and my oldest son emailed me the day to say that this book is my best book, which his praise meant uh, a lot to me. I'm going to see my youngest son. We'll talk about it at uh, dinner tonight. Uh, and so, you, you know, you you want to let people into my life. I don't want it to invade the people around me who didn't ask for this. Uh, and obviously some of the reviewers are going to try to drag everyone else in. They're going to try to call everyone else. That's just the nastiness of the world. But this is really about a faith journey. It's about a journey to a deeper understanding uh, of what life should be and what the best life is. It's, it's not their story. It's sort of my story, and I hope a universal story. You know, we all grow up. On that first mountain, the default setting is, uh, let me make myself successful. And the lie of our culture is that if I have some success, I'll find fulfillment, and that is a lie. And so we fall into the valley, and then we we discover wisdom in the valley, and we find a better way to live. And this book is really an attempt to find what's that better way to live. Now, there are two books here. There's a book about society, and embedded within it is a spiritual memoir. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the spiritual memoir than Move to the Society. We have time, and it will all appear at townhallreview.com. And I want 
to spend the time necessary to give both of them their due. This book is a lot like your climb up to American Lake. It's hard, but it's enjoyable. It's not hard in the writing, but man, the intimacy. And I, I'm not sure I want to know you this well because it's so imbalanced. I mean, I see you in the green room or at a convention every few years, but now I know your whole life story, and, and there is this imbalance with the reader that I think is going to be uncomfortable for some people. But when you have a friend like Pete Wainer, what does Pete think about the book? Well, Pete wrote a very nice piece in The Atlantic uh, about it. And what he captures very nicely is the mystery of faith. You know, some people have faith, and it's like God is on their shoulder every hour and telling them what to order at the restaurant. And God is not like that for me. God is mysterious, and, and I quote Frederick Buechner in the book, that God has changed. God is the ups and downs. And Buechner says, if you wake up every morning and you read the paper and you say, can I believe it all over again? And if you say that 10, if you say, yes, I believe it all over again 10 days in a row, Buechner says, you're probably fooling yourself. Some days you should say, no, I don't believe in all that stuff today. But two days out of 10, you should say, yes, I do believe it. And when you say it, you should believe it with Great laughter, he says. And great laughter was to impressive to you. That that made an impact on you with great laughter. It did. It did, because it, if you're going to have faith, you, you should have it with joy. And it should be joyous faith. It should be a sense that you've been given a great gift. And that or you're, you're going to try to receive the gift and pass it along. And that's how it feels to me. It's a God is weird. I mean, the astronomers say that we have a multiple number of universes, universes and an infinite number of universes in the world. That's how they say life exists. Uh, that's weird, but God is even weirder than that. And we should appreciate and be thankful for God's weirdness. Now, I have not read Beekner before, and maybe I will now. You also quote him as saying, faith is homesickness. Faith is a lump in the throat. That's very Lewis, uh, very much like Lewis would say. It's a longing for that which we have seen, that our present life is just a tiny little glimpse of what the fullness of glory is. But about your own faith, you say it comes and it goes. I don't want people to think by that you mean you drop in and out of belief. You just drop in and out of the confidence in belief. Is that true? Right. Yeah. One of my um, leaders here is a guy named Christian Wyman, who wrote a beautiful book called My Bright Abyss. And he says, you know, there are certain moments that are porous. There are certain moments when you get a hint of transcendence, where you get a hint of God's love, when you get a hint of grace. And those moments are not every day, and they're not every hour, but you Try to stay faithful to those moments and not make them just weird interruptions in your life. Because in those moments, you see a deeper uh, a deeper love. I, I have a friend I quote in the book named Catherine Cox Fly, who says, when her first daughter was born, I loved her more than evolution required. Huh. And I've always loved that phrase because it means, you know, we do some things for evolutionary reasons. We do some things to pay the rent. But there's magic in the world that can't be explained by material things and by paying the rent. There's a spiritual element in our love to each other and the way we behave, our desire to be good people. That that peeks through from something transcendent, and that seems real to me. Yeah, 20 years ago, PBS gave me a bunch of money to go out and do a, a, a series on religion called Searching for God in America. One of the people I talked to is Father Thomas Keating, a Benedictine monk who lived up in the mountains near Aspen. And he told me in his lifelong journey 
he had experienced exactly two moments of transcendence. Now, here's a guy working on it like 24-7 for 40 years. He died a few years ago. Wrote a lot of books on centering prayer. And I, I kind of walked away from that saying, what about the rest of us? I mean, you're working at a 24-7 and you get two moments where he's basically dancing through the, the eternal ocean of joy, which is, I think, how he phrased it from 20 years memory back. That is a tough a ratio. If you're talking about Twitter ratios, that's not a very good ratio. It's not a good. Mother Teresa had that. She found faith, devoted herself to the poor, and then for decades and decades she felt nothing. Uh, and she she served the poor continuously, even though she no longer felt the presence of God in her life. And somebody explained to her, um, you know, you're serving the poor. They have absence, and you have absence. You have an absence of faith. And she understood that was the price she was was going to pay to be of the poor and the poor are closer to God. And she embraced that. And so some people, you know, God is not like he's on the phone all the time. Um, and, but I find that compelling. Frankly, the, the Christians and the Jews who say God comes and goes, that seems human to me. That seems real. The ones who say, yeah, he told me to order a cheeseburger and rather than the French fries, uh, that doesn't seem real to me. And so I find the, the doubting, the strong doubters uh, sometimes more compelling than the weak uh, 100% believers. I appreciated your retelling of Mother Teresa's story. A lot of people do not understand her dark night of the soul. I think her identification with the poor obliging that, as you explained in, in the second mountain, is an excellent way to understand it, which I had not encountered before. But you also mentioned, I want to quote you, a lot of religious people, uh, and this is non-denominational slam here, and it's true, suffer from intellectual inferiority complex and spiritual superiority complex. And that results in a lot of unfortunate behaviors among the community of believers, left, right, and center. Uh, and I, I do think that naming it might, in fact, encourage a little bit of spiritual humility and a little more intellectual security by naming it. Uh, you're, do you agree? I hope so. I've tried to mention to Christian groups that uh, this is a problem. There are some people who um, <clears throat> invade your private space when they have faith. They say, God put it on my heart to totally get inside your privacy and tell you what you should do with your life, even though I don't actually know what you're doing. And so you got a lot of invasive care <laughs> inside the Christian world. Uh, and then you also get um, what Mark Knoll called the scandal of the evangelical mind. It's, uh, you know, I teach at Yale, and at Yale we're really tough on each other. Intellectually, we are tough. And if you write something medium, uh, the rest of the faculty comes down on you. And for good reasons, a lot of the people in the Christian world, uh, they want to be nice to each other, so they're not quite as tough. Uh, and I think some of the intellectual standards are not quite as high. And therefore, I, I see the spiritual inferiority, uh, superiority complex and intellectual inferiority complex. Now, you mentioned John Stott, who I've never had the chance to meet or didn't know when he was alive. I think you also know Mark Roberts, who's my very dear friend. Uh, and so... I've been useful, I've been blessed by knowing double Ph.D. kind of Christians and Al Mohler and people like that, the, the people who can sort of protect you from that. But you're talking about the Dothraki of the Christian world. They, they write in in a herd and they try and convert you. Dennis Prager, I often say when I'm appearing with him, is the most proselytized Jew in the world, but I think you might be second. And sometimes it's crude, and what I want evangelicals to hear especially is sometimes it's very counterproductive. Sometimes if they're trying to win you over for the team, it can be counterproductive. If they're trying to listen to you and let, answer your questions, 
it can be very productive. You know, when I was wandering around, um, I got sent probably 500 books, and I appreciated those books. <laughs> only, I only about 250 that. of them were like Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, so I got a lot of copies of that one. Um, and <clears throat> but So I appreciated that. But Stott was interesting. I had lunch with Stott. This was many years ago when I was really not ready to make any sort of moves. Um, and we had lunch, actually, right outside the White House. I think he'd gone to see President Bush at that moment. And he was, I wanted to have lunch and just learn about him. He didn't want, he didn't care about himself. He cared about me. And he asked me a very a series of very forceful questions about faith, which I was not ready to answer. Uh, and, uh, but they left a mark because he was the sort of guy who was very intelligent. His faith was very firm and his soul was very uh, glowing. It was, it was incandescent. And so it's for somebody who's, as a stereotype of what Christians are from the media, to actually meet somebody who you would very much like to be, that's a very persuasive argument for faith. And now, it, it jar, yeah. jars you. I, I had the great honor of interviewing N.T. Wright for three hours once. And Archbishop Chaput is a buddy of mine, and I've read Benedict. These are intellectual giants, and intellectual giants reassure. And they're not me, right? I do politics and commentary. I'm just a... I'm a yammerer, but it's good to know that behind Popeye the Sailor Man, there is a lot of spinach. I mean, there there are people out there who really do the work, and I think you've been reading them for a long time. It's evident in the Second Mountain that this is your hobby. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's my search, and you know, you and I are in the same business. We're on the media, and we have to churn out a lot of copy. But there are people like Eugene Peterson who just passed away. There's people like Henry Nowen, Jean Vanier who just died yesterday. Um, these people, A, are deep thinkers, B, are deep feelers, and C, have led lives of, of wonderful self-sacrifice. And they are the, as, as I say, a lot of the Christians and Jews I meet, I don't resonate with, but as long as there's 15 or 20 that I truly admire, then I feel like I'm heading in the right direction. Now, I want to turn to Scripture for just a moment. I talked about you behind your back with Dennis Prager on air yesterday because he has the second volume of his five-volume work on the Torah. And you talk great. I mean, you write at great length about Scripture. They are the scripts we repeat, the stories that are embedded in our lives, the Moses stories, the Noah stories, and the New Testament stories, which you accept as true. You are... um, you're actually an advocate for putting down the 500 books that are sent to you and picking up the Gospels or the Old Testament. You're you're a big advocate of reading the original. Yeah, I read a lot of theology, but if you actually want to get to the core of the faith, uh, you got to get to the stories. And the story of Exodus for me is a story that's true. Um, I don't know historically whether Moses led a people out of Egypt and across Sinai, but I do know that the migration of people into oneness, the formation of a people into a group of people capable of receiving the covenant, that's just an underlying moral truth of the universe. Uh, and it's a very beautiful depiction. It's a miraculous depiction of, of how human beings are formed. And the story of a scapegoat who accepts his scapegoat status and forgives the world and washes away the sins of the world, that's just a very powerful story. And that's powerfully true. So, you know, my belief, Tolstoy came to this a much, obviously, much greater writer than me, um, that there are certain eternal truths in the universe, and they get repeated in all of our lifetimes. And it doesn't matter what men and women say about each other. What matters is the eternal truth of the universe. 
And if you orient your life toward them, then you've oriented your life towards something important and not something passing. And Tolstoy had, in my terminology, the greatest first mountain possible to imagine. He wrote War and Peace and Anacrest, yeah. some <laughs> great books. And he had a moral crisis after that because he said, I've just been writing books to get good reviews, but there's such a thing as eternal truth. There's such a thing as faith. And I've wasted my life writing about stuff that doesn't really relate to eternal truth and doesn't relate to faith. And for a time in his life, he kept away all guns and ropes because he was, he was afraid he would kill himself. But then he recovered and lived, lived a different life. He got a second mountain. Now, I, I, I want to talk one more thing about your spiritual life, and it's incarnation camp. Now, I do so because we're right in the time of the year. Every year I raise money to send kids to Angel Tree camps, the children of prisoners. One or, both of their parents are in jail. And I run a banner at the top of Hugh Hewitt, and we've got hundreds of people that send a kid to camp. I think you made the greatest testament to summer camp. I talked to James Lankford about that this morning. He ran one summer camp for 15 years before he went to the United States Senate. The best training ever to be a senator is to have to deal with adolescents for 15 summers. But your parents deserve a shout-out here because they are as Jewish as Jewish can be, and yet they were comfortable sending you off with the Episcopalians to sing the Lord of the Dance every summer. Yeah, I went for 15 years. It was my childhood, and I have a few high school friends and a few college friends but I've got 70 camp friends. I stayed there for 15 years, and that was my childhood. And in camp, you learn a few things. First, camp forces you to learn courage. There are lots of stuff you do at camp that you don't do at school where you learn to have courage. You jump off cliffs into the lake. You run rapids in the river. You ride bikes. You do things you never thought you can. You also get much more intimate with other people. And then at that camp, um, you... Uh, you find people who just generate goodness, who just generate go joy. I had a guy at that camp who died about a year or two ago who was my counselor named Wes Wubenhorst, and he was just a radiant, joyous person. He spoke almost like a child. He was always interrupting himself with pops and whistles because he was so enthusiastic about life. He became an Episcopal priest, and he worked with the poor. He went to Honduras six months a year and worked with the poor there. He worked with women suffering domestic violence in Maryland. And so he saw the dark side of life, but it never impacted his joy. In my outline, I wanted to get a shout-out in for West Webbenhorst because he represents every Young Life volunteer I've ever met at a camp. He represents every... Uh, uh, the, the Gannon seminarians who are my camp counselors at Camp Notre Dame. He represents. He stands in for all those people who give up their summer. I never even actually thought about it until I read about Wes Webbenhorst. Isn't there something you would rather do than spend every summer with adolescents? Uh, it's really uh, remarkable. Yeah, there's nothing I would rather do. I wish I could go back and be a counselor and not be a New York Times columnist because you're you're getting people at the core of their life. You're getting them when all their guards are down and they get a chance out in nature to be themselves. And you develop faster friendships and you rely on each other more than we ever do in the adult professional world. So these are formative experiences and it, it formed me and made me who I am. When I look back on my life, I'm, I'm so glad I didn't make myself. I'm so glad that Incarnation Camp made me. I'm so glad the University of Chicago made me. Other people made me. And it's that's why I know it's really not about me. Now, let, let me turn, and this most of this will be available at, uh, will be instantly available at com and at Town Hall Review and our podcast, to the society part. And I want to begin with the universities. Uh, you write about your time at the University of Chicago, how you enjoyed 
watching your professors burn. Boy, did that hit me. I took Harvey Mansfield and Harvey Mansfield and Nathan Tarkoff, and I just wasn't smart enough, actually, to understand what they were doing, and I've never been smart enough to be a Straussian. But I love to watch them lecture, David, because they burned. And I, and I think that is, yeah. if you just sort of get close to the heat, you'll learn that that's a great place to be. Yeah, the thing is, if you catch fire with enthusiasm, people will march for miles to watch you burn. And my professors studied the great books. They studied Kant and Aristotle and Nietzsche and Burke. And they just communicated to us that the secret of life is in these books, that if you read them hard and think about them deeply, you will know how to be a good person. And I don't always remember what they taught me about Kant and Hobbes and all that, but I know they gave me access to the true wine, uh, the really deep knowledge, and after that it's hard to be satisfied with the Kool-Aid. So I think they made me a less um, shallow person than I might have otherwise been. You know, my first lecture I ever heard was by James Q. Wilson, whose book, The Moral Sense, is sort of a precursor to the second mountain, though he did not make it personal as you made the second mountain personal. But then I also had a, a lecture, his name I can't remember, lecturing on Augustine's confessions, on Wordsworth memoirs, on Rousseau's confession. And he was one of those guys who could lecture and make you say, I've got to read these books. I think one of the messages of the second mountain is that we need more Hillsdales. We need more returns of Columbia's to Western Civ. We need to re-earth Western Civ because of the inspirational impact it can have when it is taught well. And I don't know, actually, if Yale is still teaching it well. I have my doubts about my alma mater. What generally do you think is the project for universities to study? Not to undertake, but what ought they to be asking themselves? There are bits and pieces of each place where they teach this stuff for the students who really want to learn it. And that happens at Yale. But, you know, I go to a lot of colleges, uh, I was at the Biola Honors College in L.A. Those kids were amazing. They, Terrific. They, read Nietzsche. they, they and they really, uh, they really focus on the Second Mountain issues. And <clears throat> to be honest, you know, I love Yale. I teach there. I love University of Chicago. I went there. But some of the Christian colleges I go to have an advantage. They feel besieged sometimes in our culture, but they are the ones who talk honestly about how to live a good spiritual life. And when I go to some of those colleges, to Wheaton, to some of the others, they actually have an advantage because they've really been talking about what the good life is. And the secular colleges, that's sort of hidden behind the curtain. And those, the kids at those schools, the places where I teach, are starved, starved for some discussion of what is good, what is virtue, what is grace, what is sin. And nobody's teaching it because they're specializing in whatever, biochemistry or whatever, which is fine. But Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know why you're put on this earth, if you know what cause you're serving, you can handle the setbacks. If you don't know why you're serving something, the setbacks are really crushing. And a lot of the students who don't have their why really struggle in their 20s. Uh, They don't have their why, and they don't get it at commencement. I loved your little bit on commencement speakers. I've done a few of these myself, and I try not to give them the, quote, empty boxes. I try and always quote Montaigne, who says, constant cheerfulness is the surest sign of wisdom. Uh, I try and quote C.S. Lewis. You've never met an ordinary human being. All our immortal splendors are everlasting horrors. But you know what? Five-minute commencements is what I believe in, David. They cannot replace four years of serious study or even half of those four years in serious study. Yeah, and my problem with commencements is they reflect the hyper-individualism of our culture. You do you. Find your own truth, all that kind of stuff. And students can't find their own truth. None of us can. Uh, You have to go elsewhere and find the truth that's been handed down to you. And if you ask people to find your own value system, well, maybe if you're Aristotle, you can do it. The rest of us need some help. Uh, And so it's hyper-individualized. 
It does not allow them to find the answers to the real questions. It doesn't even point them in the right directions. Uh, find your passion. Most people don't have a passion. Yep. Uh, most people find a responsibility. There's something outside the world, outside you, a problem needing to be solved that actually is your life. And so asking the question, what do I want from life, is always the wrong question. It's more like, what is life asking of me? The very best commencement I ever heard was by Julie Andrews at the University of Colorado when she, in very professional fashion, told everyone in the audience of 20,000, you're going to get knocked on your ass, and the question is, will you get up? And my question to myself was, has anyone taught them how to do that? And I think successful colleges do. Let's go to the second indicia of the societal breakdown which is tribalism. Now, you dictate or you detail a lot of the crises, loneliness, distrust, a lack of meaning, unredemptive suffering. But I think if I had to center on one of the David Brooks's greatest worries, it is tribalism. I want you to explain it first, and let's talk about the, the cure for it. You know, we've done a lot in 60 years of hyper-individualism to leave people naked and alone. And when people are naked and alone, they do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do which is they revert to tribe. And tribalism seems like a good way to form community, but it's actually the opposite dark twin of community. Community is based on a mutual love. We love our God, we love our town, we love our nation. But tribalism is based on a mutual hatred. We hate the other, some other Republicans, Democrats, whatever it is. And so tribe is always a scarcity mentality. It's a zero-sum mentality. It's a conflict mentality. It's always us versus them, erect barriers, build walls. And I find tribalism in our politics, I find tribalism in our universities, and I find tribalism is the source of the way we are cruel to one another. Now, I'm sure you were friends with Charles Krautheimer. I don't know that for a fact, I'm just guessing. And Charles wrote his, yeah, his, many of his essays, the two that stuck with me is his suggestion that the reason we haven't been contacted by an advanced civilization is that all civilizations destroy themselves upon reaching a certain technological ability. And so no civilization endures. But he also wrote that politics is sovereign. In fact, that's how he began his last book. His son's book is a collection of great essays. But Charles' last book begins with politics is sovereign. So if politics is sovereign, and I believe it is, it's our biggest job as citizens in a free state, how does a citizen tackle tribalism? Yeah, I may disagree with that one. On You know, I think politics is a limited activity. Um, one of my heroes is Samuel Johnson, and he had a couplet of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are those that kings can cause and cure. Most of our life is about our relationships. It's about our character. It's about how well we love the things we love. And politics to me is important. You know, you and I spend, we spend our lives in politics. But it's, politics is usually a competition between partial truths, uh, between the conflict between equality and achievement or security and liberty. And it's about balance. And my hero is a guy named Michael Oakeshott who said, steering politics is just like steering a ship. But sometimes it lists over to one side and you have to lean one way. And sometimes it lists over the other and you have to lean the other way. You're just trying to achieve a little balance. And so I try to tone down our passions about politics. It's important, but if we had a society where people treated each other well, where people were good family members, good spouses, good brothers and sisters, I think our politics would be healthy out of that. If we have a society where people do not treat their neighbor well and do not love their neighbor, 
then our politics, which is downstream from culture, is going to reflect that, too. And let let me disagree that. with you a little bit in, in that the Constitution has given us, and I am a constitutionalist first, the opportunity to both think freely and to pursue God without fetters in the in the Bill of Rights. And so Madison's among my firmament of stars, and that politics ought to be about defending that freedom. It ought to be about liberty, because you can't do what you just said needs to be done very easily. You can do it in a, in a you, you point out in the life of uh, uh, the Holocaust uh, a victim of, uh, I, I never actually heard of her before, uh, who dies in Auschwitz in, in 1943, you can do it without freedom, but it's a lot easier to find meaning, purpose, and God if you have a constitution protecting the right to talk, think, speak, pray, and worship. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, one of the things, um, well, Thucydides told us was that in politics, the lows are lower than the highs are high. And what he meant by that was when politicians screw up, they can create complete catastrophes. When they do something really well, you get sort of modest progress. And so the, the watchword for politicians is to stay cautious and not screw up. And obviously the rise of fascism, the rise of socialism, the rise of communism were massive uh, and evil insults to human society. And I, I never co- covered fascism, but I did cover the Soviet Union. And when Ronald Reagan called it an evil, evil empire, he was absolutely correct. It was an evil empire that really destroyed lives and destroyed souls. Now, Thucydides also said the secret to happiness is freedom, and the secret to freedom is courage. This book is about courage in many regards and how you you raise it up. I want to talk about the weavers and the thread. You know, a, a podcast perfect time is 45 minutes. We're running low. The weavers and the thread matter to me a lot. The former is your project at the Aspen Institute. The latter is a community group in Baltimore. Can you connect the dots for people about them both? Sure. The the core problem, as I see it in our society, is uh, social isolation. But everywhere on local levels around society, there are people solving that problem. Uh, and they are community builders. They are weavers. They're weaving society together, and they do it through love. They do it through uh, just being mutual with each other. They're just geniuses at relationship. And one of the great organizations I've come across is called Thread in Baltimore by a woman named Sarah Hemminger. And Hemminger was isolated as a child. Her, her dad... Uh, was a deacon of the church, and he found out that the priest was um, was embezzling money, and he reported it to uh, everyone else. And instead of getting rid of the priest, they got rid of the, they ostracized her family. So Sarah grew up in isolation. Eight years of her childhood, she and her brother had nobody to talk to at parties. She was ostracized by her community. She goes to Johns Hopkins. She's a biochemical engineer. She drives by a high school and sees kids who are isolated. And she says, I know exactly what they feel. And so she creates this organization called Thread, which really surrounds the kid and social, the kids in social relationships, 450 underperforming kids in Baltimore schools. They've got four volunteers who are parents, four volunteers who are grandparents, 12 more who are collaborators. This elaborate system of relationships to drive them to school, to bring them lunch, to look after them. And it's like a second family. And because she's an engineer, she's got this app on her so when the two phone, the phone of a volunteer gets into contact with the phone of a uh, student because they're next to each other, it records on her app. She calls it the Fitbit of social relationship. It's a great it's story. A beautiful, yeah. It's a beautiful mixture of like something deeply emotional, creating relationships with kids and shoring up a society that is in free fall, but also doing it with science. And uh, I find a lot of the weavers I really admire, they have great emotional lives. They're great at relationships. They're also pretty good at engineering. 
That is, you know, I, I agree with you. And I've also found for the years in Young Life uh, and being a backer of it, that their old rule that there have got to be seven men in the lives of every boy not named their father for them to have successful role models of how to live in extraordinary circumstances. And the thread sounds like both boys and girls are getting that. Let me go quickly to the choice that you put down on page 118. Eventually, everyone has to choose between helping a small number of people a lot or helping a large number of people a little. And that my slogan is always do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can, uh, provided you're doing so in the service of God, country, family and friends. But that doesn't answer the question that you pose. What is better, David Brooks, a small number of people a lot or a large number of people a little? Well, like a small number of people a lot is a teacher, a large number of people a little is a principal. A small number of people a lot is a journalist. A large number of people a little is an editor. And frankly, you and I, uh, we have big platforms, and we're very lucky to have these platforms to communicate with a lot of people. And I think it's our responsibility to try to use our platforms in the best way. But I think we, I'll say this for myself, I sort of miss having 12 people whose lives I'm going to interact with every day, uh, and I will influence them a lot. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of virtue to people who just say, you know, I'm not, I don't have the big platform, but I'm going to be deep into the lives of those around me. And well, in some ways, that's a more nurturing way to live. The Second Mountain is a cheerleading book for that choice. And I, I want people to read it with that in regards. Now, I want to close this way. Uh, the eight most important words I know is, I know a guy, and have you ever considered? And it always obliges you to think about opportunity that's coming your way. You have always apparently been open to sudden and dramatic changes of direction, which I think is important for people if they want to live productively. You've got 15 to 20 years left of high productivity. That's my estimate, unless we all expand lifespans, even with artificial knees, even with many platforms. We're both about the same age, 15 to 20 years. What do you want to accomplish? You know, I'm open to everything. I've had a very tumultuous last six years. I've I've found faith. I've had your family, I keep my kids obviously close, but uh, some things are, have just changed. My outlook has changed. Uh, our nation has changed. And so I, I uh, embrace uh, the possibility that even at my age, I'm 57, I could change radically in the next five, and I'm completely open to whatever God is calling me to do. And I think that openness, that you're never too old to embrace change, is a, is a very liberating sense. My only um, constant is that you know, I, I've spent my whole life writing books to try to make me a better person than I used to be. And as Kafka said, um, a book should be an axe for the frozen sea inside you. And I, I try to write my way into being a better person. And then when I find something that's really good, something that's really wise, I pass it along. I try to pass it along to readers. And there's a great saying about writers that we're we are beggars that tell other beggars where we found bread. <laughs> and so that's I hope true. to find wisdom in the years ahead and then pass along to my readers is my book is filled with quotations it's not that i'm so smart but i've found a lot of smart people and i'm going to pass along what they know there are a lot of books mentioned in the second mountain by the way and i would close as a columnist i hate receiving suggestions on columns so let me do what i hate i would love to get your reading list i would love of those 500 books on faith that were given to you you name a couple that are are vital i would love to read the david brooks reading list after this Mm -hmm. are are you um Hey, it's a number one bestseller, so the Second Mountain has you on a book tour. Are you done with books, or are you going to be back in the book business? Yeah, I think books are, they are the pinnacle of what I do professionally. Uh, I I like books because that allows me to work on myself. Uh, You know, you're working on your issues in public, and sometimes that's embarrassing. Uh, 
but this is my way of trying to be a better person and trying to help other people think through how they can be better people. Well, congratulations on the second mountain. It does both. The Quest for a Moral Life, available at Amazon.com now. David Brooks's book is engaging, and it will oblige you to assess. So go and get it, read it, enjoy it, and tell me what you think about it. Thank you, David. Thank you. I'm deeply grateful. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.